what advice you would give to your younger self if you could? Everyone is going to have their own opinion of what you should do, whether it's teachers or parents or friends. And I think, of course, listen to that with an open mind, but also take it with a grain of salt. Hello, and welcome to the Tech Queens podcast, a podcast focused on featuring stories and advice from women of color in tech. In this episode, I'm talking with Christina O, oh, who is currently a product designer at Percolate, a SaaS marketing orchestration platform. She is based in New York and loves engaging with the UX community there. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much. Great to be on. So actually, just to like, let's take a step back. What exactly is SaaS marketing orchestration? Because I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm <laughs> from an engineering background. So like any uh, education you can give me there would be great. Yeah, definitely. So um, SaaS, which probably most people who are listening will know, um, but it does mean software as a service. So it means that we build a software product that other businesses then can use to make their business processes better. And when we say marketing orchestration, we mean that when enterprises are handling their marketing campaigns, there are so many different moving pieces involved. It's really like handling an orchestra. So our platform is really allowing these marketers in enterprise companies to better manage, plan, and report on their marketing campaigns really all in one place. So we're really fulfilling a, a true need out there. And I, I hope that answered your question. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, marketing is a big deal like at Slack and I'm sure many other tech companies, it's just super critical. So completely agree. I'm actually on the marketing web team um, at Slack. So that means I take care of like slack.com and try to get people familiar with the product if they've never heard of it before. Uh, so I'm kind of familiar with the marketing website, but this was like a, a new phrase for me. So it's good that you broke it down. Awesome. Great. So Christina, moving on then, taking a step forward, what's your story? Yeah. So my story is a bit of an interesting wandering path. And that's actually something I love about the UX design world. Everyone that I've come into contact with that is a UX or product designer comes from such different backgrounds. And mine is no different. So I studied marketing in college. And for about six plus years, I was working in advertising agencies, mostly in the account management departments. So I really played a role as a middleman between our creative teams that were developing advertising campaigns and our clients. But from there, I really decided that I wanted to make a career shift. While I loved what I was doing, I was able to work with some UX designers in my time in advertising, and I thought their work was really interesting. They were solving interesting problems, and their work just felt more tangible and a bit more creative. So knowing that I wanted to make this change, I attended the UX boot camp full-time at General Assembly. And honestly, it was really scary. I quit my job and it was like the first time I was unemployed for many years to, to really commit 
commit to doing this program full time, but I really don't regret it. I have loved being a product designer the past few years, mostly focused at these SaaS B2B companies where I'm able to solve complex problems. And so I'm really happy that I've made this career switch. And I think coming from this advertising background has made my fit at my current role percolate really logical, just given that I truly understand the audience's pain points in terms of being a marketer and what they're trying to solve. So it really feels full circle to be able to do this new role, but in a environment that I do feel comfortable in. Yeah, that's great. And I think that I do have some follow-up questions. So first you said you got a college degree in marketing, right? And I'm wondering, because back when I was in high school, I didn't even know what marketing was. So I'm kind of curious, what even made you get into marketing in the first place, like back when you were in high school or in college? Yeah, you know, and I I think about that from time to time. And I honestly, I can't point to any one particular reason. I think in high school, towards the end of high school, I was thinking about where to go to college and what I wanted to study. And I was interested in in a number of things. I considered science for a while, but business in general just felt like there were a lot of different opportunities and I would be less pigeonholed. And of all the kind of verticals one can study in business, whether it's economics or finance, et cetera, marketing just felt like the most creative of the business specializations. And the part that I found most interesting about marketing is really this idea of the psychology of why people buy the things they do. So coming from that kind of psychological interest, I think that has also transitioned well into the work I do as a product designer. I think there is a lot of overlap in both areas in terms of thinking about what are people's mental maps? Why are they taking actions that they do? And the only difference really in marketing is that you're usually trying to increase sales or awareness of something, whereas in product, you're trying to increase engagement with a platform. But at the end of the day, thinking through how people work and how they think in their day-to-day lives is a very similar theme that has consistently been interesting to me. Yeah, you know, everything you were talking about, it actually reminded me of this book I read way back in the day. It's called Hooked by Nir Yal. Um how to build habit-forming products, this guide to boosting customer engagement and building habit-forming technology. Have you ever heard of it? Absolutely. And it's so funny that you just said that. One of my colleagues recently went to a product conference and that author was one of the speakers and that book is floating around my office. So it's definitely next on my list of books to read. No, I mean, I feel like you're already a step ahead because I feel like what part of what you said earlier was kind of almost verbatim, like from the book at some point, uh, <laughs> or very similar, like paraphrase. Uh, what was the conference? I believe it was ProductCon. ProductCon. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's through Product School, maybe? I think so, yes. Okay. And for those who don't know, Product School is this um, program that tries to ramp you up to become a product manager um, and they operate like all over the world. Um, I actually went through one of their boot camps um, just because I was like interested in learning about something I had absolutely no experience in, which was the product side. Um, It was a bit shorter than I would have liked, but I did get some value out of it. So that was interesting, Uh, but cool. And then I did want to also dive into like kind of what you do more day in to day. Um, as a product designer, and then also maybe to define what a product designer is in your own like words, like based on your own experience. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think what's interesting is that because UX and product design is still a pretty new industry compared to some of the other careers out there, there's a lot of confusion around what it means. And even if you look at the job descriptions out there, people kind of interchangeably use the titles product designer, UX designer, UI designer. And I think everyone you ask will probably have a different answer. To me, what makes a product designer different is that we really think strategically. So not just focusing on any one particular part of the design process, but as a whole, how can we improve this process? How can we improve a product by really thinking about the users of it and making sure we have validated insights, whether it's the research or through data to inform how this product evolves and how is that executed through design. So to me, being a product designer, there is a lot of strategic thinking involved and bringing together the different point of views of my colleagues, whether it be engineers or product managers or the sales team, et cetera. How do we bring together all these different informational points that are super important and come to a cohesive product decision? So to me, that's what that means. And in terms of my role, I really, as I was saying, cover kind of the full spectrum when it comes to the product development process. So every day is a real mix, but some of what I do involves a fair amount of research. So talking to our customers and understanding what their pain points are and what are their day-to-day jobs look like so we can try to figure out how we can best solve their problems. And it's interesting because a lot of our customers are marketers in the enterprise world. So it can be hard to get time with them just because they're so busy. But when we do get these valuable, whether it be a video conversation or a phone call, we get very interesting insights to how different marketers at different companies do their jobs. So a lot of what we do is just talking to people and understanding how they work. And then the next step of that is really looking at the data side of things. So these customer interviews where we're having conversations with them is great for qualitative research. And then we also try to back that up with quantitative research. So we look at a number of data points to understand our users' behavior at a larger scale. And then those two things together really help inform the next steps of how we evolve the product. So some of the work that I do in addition to the research and data analysts, is working with a lot of different coworkers uh, on a number of products. So I think that level of collaboration is important. I work to build features by doing wireframe designs. I do prototyping, which are interactive click-throughs that we can use to test with users, but also to communicate to other stakeholders how we envision our features working. And then I would say it's also going back to the strategic side, just thinking about where our products can continue to grow so that we are still relevant in the marketplace. So doing a lot of just thinking about the landscape in terms of competitors, and then even the nitty gritty of drawing what these designs can look like in our actual interface. And then a final point of something that I focus on frequently is our design system. So for those of you who don't know, design systems are getting super big these days. It's an easy way for design teams to really write down what their guidelines are when it comes to design. And that can include high-level design principles, 
everything down to what kind of colors should we use in what situations. So a big part of my role is fleshing out our design system to make sure that anyone internally working on our product is on the same page when it comes to how things should look and feel and behave. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I actually, so I have so many follow-up questions, but I think if I wanted to recap kind of all the different things that you do in a couple words, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like collaboration, prototyping, wireframing, research, high-level strategy, and then building out the design system. Does that, would you say that kind of sums it up a lot? Absolutely. That is a perfect recap. (laughs) Okay, brilliant. Um, And regarding design systems, I'd love to maybe elaborate more on that. So do you actually know someone named Mina Markham? I don't think so. Who is that? So she's actually uh, a international speaker. She works for Slack. She's one of my coworkers, but she does a lot of work um, or talks rather and work actually around design systems. So she helped build out Spacesuit, which is the internal marketing design system that we use for Slack.com. And we use a different design system for like the product, but that's the one that we use for like all our web presence, right? And marketing. So Right off the bat, yeah, I completely agree that design systems are super hype right now. Um, (laughs) um, Definitely at Slack as well. So super awesome. I wanted to touch too on what you said about customers, right? And that's really important. Customer centric is like a big thing for a lot of tech companies. But how is it that you're able to like make sure the customers you're talking to are reflective, I guess, of like most of your user base, you know, because you can have bad data which is when the data that you're looking at is not inclusive, right? And so then it's a bit biased. Uh, So I'm wondering how you're able to kind of navigate that process. Definitely. And you're absolutely correct. It's very possible to get bad data and that could lead to spending a bunch of time and money building something that isn't really validated. So something that I do is make sure that the customers we're speaking to are relevant to the problem that we're solving. And we have such a wide array of customers from mid-sized companies to bigger ones, whether they're agencies or in-house marketing teams and different titles. So there are a lot of options to choose from. And what we really try to do is think about if there is a specific feature that we're working on or if there's a specific problem that we're solving for, what criteria would make someone the best candidate to speak to so that they do represent what a larger group of users would look like? So it can be things like titles. So I can give a perfect example where our company is working out on building our developer tools. And a big part of that is understanding developers better. And so in attempting to speak to developers from our customers, my product manager and I put together a screener survey. And some of those questions are, what's your title? How long have you worked at your company? What kind of programming languages do you use, et cetera? And we will choose who we speak to for these more in-depth conversations based on their initial answers in that screener survey. And that way we know exactly who we're talking to and can make a decision on who best fits this archetype that we will be making some assumptions on. And for those who don't know, what is an archetype? Cause that's, a, that's kind of a buzzword. And well, I didn't know what the word used to mean. Uh, well, I guess now I do, but anyway, could you define it? 
Yeah, from my point of view, an archetype is really a high level representation of a wide variety of people. So you could have hundreds of different types of customers, but if you can say, these are our five most common archetypes that we feel our audience fit into, and you can attribute certain behaviors to them, Keeping that in mind, you're able to focus on which archetypes different features ladder up to, and ultimately it can help to inform some of your product and design decisions. Right, exactly. Um, I actually attended this like nonprofit brand strategy workshop, and one of the exercises was creating archetypes like that your nonprofit targets. And so that was a really useful exercise because then you can actually break down all these different users or groups of people that you're trying to serve and then maybe realize that you're trying to serve too many people. And so that means like what you're doing is not very focused or that you're not serving enough people as you could. So I think in general, archetypes are quite useful. So shifting gears a little bit though, I did wanna get into kind of like your background, how you got into tech, um, your journey with General Assembly which um, is a, you know, boot camp across the U.S., one of the most popular boot camps, actually. Yeah, could you expand on that? Like, how did you get into tech and why did you decide to choose General Assembly as like the way to get into product design? Definitely. So there are a lot of things about tech that interest me. I like that the work felt more tangible. A lot of what I did in advertising, because I didn't have a creative role and I was more of a communicator that brought people together, it didn't feel like I had a lot of tangible outputs at the end of the day. Whereas working in tech, whatever kind of product development life cycle you're going through, you do get to see the work that you do get pushed live. And I think that's super exciting to see. So that level of tangibility in the work I was doing interests me. I think also the element of research, which I've touched upon, that is something that I find super interesting. It's very obvious, I think, that technology has become such a major part of our day-to-day lives, Mm -hmm. especially in how people work in their jobs. So thinking through those more complex problems of people are trying to do these tasks and get their job done, but how can our products make their day-to-day better? That kind of thinking is something that really interests me. And in terms of General Assembly, I looked at a number of programs and I felt that I liked GA had a full-time program. First of all, I think doing a part-time one is totally feasible. And if you need to do that because you need to maintain your day-to-day job, I think it's still great to pursue that. I think personally, I really wanted to commit to this and I felt the best way for me to do that was to do it full-time. So I liked that aspect. I also had a few friends who had gone to General Assembly for other courses. So they also offer courses in programming and in product management and data analytics. So I just had really positive reviews from friends who had gone through the program. And I think that level of additional authenticity is what helps me make that decision. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar sort of conversation with myself a a while back in 2015 I was deciding like which program to go into um well boot camp specifically and I decided to go with full stack academy uh which is in New York City and they focused on software development um so yeah that was a great decision um I really enjoyed my time there and that's actually the big reason how I was able to get my uh first part-time job as like a software engineer so 
it was it was good and cool and how did you end up choosing that um that program specifically because there are so many out there oh yeah especially in new york city where i was at the time it was just so many options so the first reason was i think because of the scholarships i guess i'll be honest like they had some pretty good financial options for me Um, The second reason was because of the location. It was really close to where I was staying with my relatives. And then the third reason was actually because when I was interviewing, so I interviewed with a bunch of these different boot camps and Full Stack Academy by far was the one that I had the most positive experience with, like where they genuinely cared about like the value I would get out of the program. A lot of the other ones, I actually got the impression sometimes that they were kind of just for profit and really just trying to churn out people as fast as they could. And I could see that in the way that they were executing with like emails, like they would have a bunch of typos in my name oh. <laughs> in, and in the email. And it just like really unprofessional. Um, they would be late to a call or they would have the call while they were driving. And I was like, what is this? Um, it turns out later on that that specific boot camp like got closed down because they like violated some rules. So, I mean, it was good that I saw those red flags, but it's still something that happens now. And it's good to be cognizant of that. It's like, it's the same with colleges. Like there are some colleges out there that are super sketchy. And it's, a, it's, it's the same with the coding bootcamp industry, in my opinion. So it's always good to do your research for those out there who are interested in doing a bootcamp of any kind, because there's so many different types. Like there's ones for product management, product design, uh, full second development, mobile development, UI, UX specifically, I guess, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a cool, it's a cool market landscape either way. Um, and it all just started pretty, not too long ago. I think 2012 was when the first bootcamp started. So it's been seven years, actually. It's been a while, huh? Interesting. Um, But anyway, shifting gears, though, I do want to get more into like your background, like specifically as a minority woman in tech and kind of like how that influenced your experience in the tech industry. Part of the reason I started this podcast is because I felt that our voices, specifically as minority women, are just not highlighted very well, if at all, um, from my experience personally being in the tech industry. And so really the point of this podcast is to elevate um, and put more visibility to our experiences in tech. And so if you could expand on that, that would be great. Definitely. And I I love that you started this podcast. I super agree with your sentiment. I think there are so many women of color that are doing awesome things in tech that are just not being highlighted quite as much. I've been to a few conferences or meetup where the roster of speakers is, you know, great to see these people from cool companies, but it's just not as diverse as I would like it to be. And I think when you're looking to to your future and what you want your career to look like in 10, 20 years, if you don't see a lot of people that look like you that are from a similar background, it's difficult to imagine how you could get there and what your future has in store. So I definitely think things like this podcast um, helps. I'm also in a number of UX communities in New York that focus on promoting women and non-binary so that it's just more inclusive and exactly to your point, 
right, offers a bigger voice to us in the community. I think what has been most difficult for me is not letting it affect me too much. I think I, I've been called by some people like a social justice warrior. I feel things very deeply. And when I see that level of inconsistency and that lack of diversity, it really does bother me. But at the end of the day, being angry about it doesn't solve anything. So I really try to channel that passion into actual solutions instead of just letting myself kind of simmer and wallow in whatever I'm feeling. Yeah. And I think I think that's really helped. I think doing things like speaking with you, um, I recently just started doing this mentorship program that I would highly recommend to anyone out there interested, but there is a group called Built by Girls, and they really focus on encouraging young women in high school and college to enter the STEM and tech fields. And so I was able to mentor a young woman in college who is majoring in computer science. And it was such an awesome experience. She's super smart. She's interested in everything from engineering to design to data to product and just being able to communicate to her what it's like to work in the tech field and to encourage her to really pursue that passion is I think a much better way of channeling my feelings around the disparity in gender. And so I think doing those types of side kind of projects to reach out to people has been super helpful. Yeah, huge plus one to everything you just said. Um, I have been told I can be super negative and it's like, well, this is the reality folks. Sorry. Um, but I, yeah, again, I have tried to also channel all this, like, I guess, I guess I'll say it's anger. Um, but also yes. passion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, passion is a nicer word for it, but like all this passion into like the, the work I'm doing with Decadia, which is this nonprofit that serves uh, Latinx and tech in the U S um, that has been like my, my channel. And then also through this podcast, because I wasn't hearing enough people like myself talking about technology, I wasn't seeing enough people either. And even in the women in tech spaces, I was seeing this disparity where with some events that I went to early on, when there was a women in tech panel, it was all white women. And so I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. Um, where are the women of color, right? Yeah, so, definitely. There is that narrative. It's good to acknowledge that. Yeah. So I'm wondering too, like you talked about the strategies you've used to overcome that channeling that energy into the Built by Girls initiative. So you volunteered. Um, and I actually, I have this like tension sometimes where I'm like, I don't like doing it, but sometimes, because my boyfriend is a white male, a white cis white male, and so and he doesn't really think about this stuff because he doesn't have to, right? And so I feel like he has more time to focus on his engineering profession. And I'm like, well, if I were a cis white male, would I have to think about any of this? And the answer would probably be no. And so I guess like for me internally, I'm just thinking, I think it's okay for me to to put all this effort in, but I also want to recognize that maybe it's taking away from like being a better engineer. Have you ever like felt that struggle at all? Like how do you balance the two? If that if is yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um I've definitely thought about it. Yes. Like what would I do with the time that I spend 
doing a fair amount of volunteer work and writing think pieces on medium, you know, mm -hmm. if it wasn't as relevant to me. So it's definitely, I a hundred percent hear what you're saying. And I think it's a balance. I think, you know, it's up to each person to decide what is important to them. And I think for me, I, I love product design and I love working in tech, but I think not even, I, I wouldn't say more than that, but at least equal to that is seeing the improvement kind of across the board when it comes to gender diversity. And I actually think it makes me a better designer, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. because the more that I'm engaged in these volunteer programs, whether it is mentoring younger students or talking on podcasts, I actually feel it forces me to think deeper about how I come across as a product designer and even in my day-to-day -day work. So, you know, as we're thinking about things like accessibility, for example, not just things like color blindness and low vision impairment, but also who are the different types of people that are using this product and what are their needs? And I think it's just made me a more empathetic designer. And perhaps that's just because, you know, working in design, a big part of it is understanding people and how they think. So it kind of works hand in hand, I would say, because it is a bit, you know, it's less technical than being an engineer, for example, and it's more you know, kind of talking to people and understanding them. So in that sense, I think it has worked out. And someone else I, I was talking to about this, I was like, maybe I shouldn't be so angry about these things. You know, it feels like a lot of other people are not as angry. Um, but the person I was talking to made a good point of, you know, someone has to be angry for these things to change. And if you think about the big feminist movements that have happened over the decades, they were caused by women who were angry. And I think that's a good thing. So sometimes on a personal level, it can definitely feel exhausting. Like you're fighting this uphill battle and for, for what kind of personal output. But I think at the end of the day, it feels a little bit larger than just me or you. And even if it's just a few hundred or thousand women that maybe hear this podcast or one-on-one -on -one that we speak to during a mentorship program that feels encouraged to work in STEM. I honestly, I really think it's worth it. And I, I've received, even from the very few speaking engagements I've done, I've received just really positive feedback from women who are like, I'm so happy that I saw someone who had a similar background who was able to speak about the issues that I'm facing. And I think those just further reinforce that we're doing the right thing. No, I completely agree. And I mean, I love this work that I'm doing. It's just like, and I recognize that diversity is super important because there was this um, fellow from Dropbox, who was one of the first engineers. His name is Aston Motes, I believe. And he has this quote that I really like. It's um, talking about how some people, when they're looking for like, I don't know, condiment in the kitchen, like ketchup, they might look in the pantry and they always just go back to the pantry when they're looking for that ketchup. And the reason that diversity in tech is really good is that you have people who think differently and maybe they're looking into at the into the fridge for that ketchup or like they're thinking about going outside of the kitchen even to look for that ketchup because they have a way of thinking that is very different. And so I think that touches to like what you were saying, as long as we're bringing more of those voices in the room, it's going to be better for everyone. And it's probably going to lead to a better user experience, a better product. And then also to touch to your point, like, even if we only influence like one or two women 
with the talking that we're doing here today, it'll be worth it. And I completely agree. I just also want to recognize that it is really straining and hard sometimes and that it's not always easy for me personally to like be involved and like try to educate people sometimes. Even today, I had this incident where there were some coworkers kind of casually talking about smoking pot. And I was like, oh, well, my brother actually, you know, almost got arrested for smoking pot and he almost went to jail. Um, and he like, my, my brother's very dark skinned and these were white colleagues I was with. And so I was like, well, I don't know if I want to bring into that, like the, that disparity because the earlier topic right before they talked about that was like incarceration and how, you know, a lot of the unfairness and in incarceration and how there was this exercise where folks were saying who here has committed a crime and then people were realizing that if you drank under the age of 21 you had actually committed a crime so that was actually a lot of people or if you smoke pot in a state that was where it was not legal you were committing a crime and, and, and all these different things so anyway there was like this disparity there because not everyone understands that one of the biggest reasons I think the incarceration rate is so high here in America compared to every other country is because of that like baked in racism that this country is built on. And my brother, you know, being the, the way that he looks super, super Latino, he was probably like biased against um, because he was targeted and profiled as someone who like would have weed. Um, anyway, so totally big tangent, but I, I, I totally get it. And sometimes like I struggle with those microaggressions though, or like those situations where it's like, it's really hard to also want to speak up. And I wonder if you've ever had those issues at work too, where like you don't feel comfortable speaking up, even though there's like something going on right in front of you, if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think back to kind of the earlier phase of my career, I definitely was much more hesitant about speaking up. And I think it was just this, this fear, which is very normal for anyone starting out in their career where you don't wanna say anything that you think people will judge or will make people look at you in a different light. And so I was very cautious in what I would vocalize in front of colleagues, especially if they were more senior than me, which was very common at the time um, because I was entry level working in advertising. Mm -hmm. But I have found like the more comfortable I get just as, a, as an adult, just growing up, I definitely feel more comfortable vocalizing my opinions. I, I've been in many meetings where I am the only woman and definitely the only woman of color. And I often feel this pressure and I'm sure you have as well, but to represent every woman and every minority in everything right. I say, yep. yeah, every, yeah, everything I say could be generalized or judged. And, you know, it just, it is a lot of pressure to feel, but, you know, I just, I've just tried to stop overthinking so much. And I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of credit and just understand that whatever we're thinking or that we want to say is valuable. And you know what, maybe we're playing devil's ad advocate, maybe it'll be an opinion that's unpopular because it's not something that everyone else is thinking. But I've actually kind of gotten used to and also enjoyed pushing those boundaries a little bit. And 
there's this like gray space of discomfort where I think it's necessary to have that level of discomfort because otherwise nothing would ever change. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think just bringing to light things that, uh, that may not seem like it's PG or the common opinion is super scary at first. And I think it just takes a lot of time to get used to it. One example I would give is I, a few months ago, wrote a Medium article about the subtle sexism of icons. And a few months ago at my current job, they were starting these kind of monthly lightning talks that were between the engineers and designers and PMs could join. And it was really a time you could take five, 10 minutes and talk about any topic. And I decided to present some slides on this idea of the subtle sexism of icons. And, you know, it's a room of engineers and there were a few women, but honestly, you know, majority male, I would say. Mm -hmm. And just being able to vocalize that, I don't think I would have done earlier in my career because I would have been scared. But now I'm like, it's it's good, you know, even if people think it's weird or that I'm like the sore thumb that is just kind of pushing my feminist agenda or whatever it may be, I felt like for those five to seven minutes that I had their attention, maybe the next time that they go to choose an icon, they'll just be a little bit more cognizant about what it represents. So yeah, I think it's just taken a lot of time and a lot of self-growth to feel more comfortable really speaking out, especially in rooms where you're representing a whole lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I should definitely check that article out. I'm curious now. <laughs> Which icons have I think that no. appropriate? Um, but yeah, I completely resonate with that. And I think that a good phrase that my mom likes to use is like making people squirm. Like she's okay with doing that. And yeah, I, I love I, that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'm like if I'm there yet, but I want to get there. (laughs) Yeah. So I just need to challenge myself more to like be comfortable with that uncomfort, discomfort Mm -hmm. um, in the room, even if I'm the only one who feels that way. So yeah, completely resonates. All right. So to end off before we shift into the mini takeaways, could you share what advice you would give to your younger self if you could? Yeah, definitely. So I think when it comes to career paths, and I've tried to communicate this to mentees that I've spoken with, but everyone is going to have their own opinion of what you should do, whether it's teachers or parents or friends. And I think, of course, listen to that with an open mind, but also take it with a grain of salt. I'll say, You know, in high school, you were asking me how I chose business and marketing. And for a long time, I didn't want to. I wanted to be a scientist. I was interested in marine biology and genetics. And there were a few people who had made certain comments that made me think I wouldn't be successful in science. And those few comments and being an impressionable high school student, I completely changed my path. And I don't regret it. I love the path that I work in now. But It's kind of like who knows what that alternate path could have looked like if I had just followed my initial gut feeling of pursuing something like science. So at the end of the day, I think it's hard when you're young too. And that's why I was able to make this career transition when I was older, because I was able to listen to myself more than I was listening to others who were like, hey, you're kind of crazy for quitting this like pretty decent paying job just to pursue a path you don't know you'll love, that you don't know if you'll get a job in. But I think if you become more confident in yourself and just 
try to be more in tune to what your gut is telling you as long as it's within kind of reason. But I think being able to listen to yourself and what you really want to do is good. But then also, if you don't, that's okay, too. You know, we've all gone through so many career changes. Uh, You know, it's very possible that I will change careers in the future again. And it's never kind of the end game. So even if you are in a path that you don't feel is right, or you're not sure, that's okay, too. I think just taking that next step, Uh, And knowing you'll figure it out eventually, which might sound kind of cheesy, but I believe it because it it did happen for me. No, that's great. I mean, I guess that's just like taking a leap of faith, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's really valuable. Um, Okay. Let's shift gears to the mini takeaways. So these are meant to be short, sweet answers for social media posts. So let's get started. Uh, What is a useful app or platform that has helped you grow in your career? I love Medium. I I think I mentioned it briefly, but I think it's a great resource. So for those of you that might not know it, it's this open platform where anybody can write a post about any topic. It it is tend to lean heavily towards tech and design, but there's a ton of just life content and health content and entertainment. So you could really write about anything. And I've met some really cool people just through that community. And there's also a lot of writers on Medium that work at interesting companies. So if you wanted to kind of follow a designer or an engineer that works at your dream company, you could get a a little insight into what their day-to-day is like. So I definitely think Medium has been such a great place for me to not only share my own ideas, but also to read other people's ideas. Yeah, I used to be like hooked on medium I would just like have the mobile app and yep. open it up every morning and then before you know it's like I've read 10 articles and it's like where has the time gone what am I doing totally. um so I think I I had to remove it after that because it was like for at least a year I had been doing that so now I don't really read anymore which is bad I just work <laughs> anyway no I, I completely agree I think medium's pretty cool So next question, what is an organization or affinity group that you would recommend joining? Yeah, there are so many great ones. I'm very fortunate to be in New York where that is a very active community. So I mentioned the Built by Girls Wave Mentorship Program. That's a great one that I've really enjoyed. There's also the UXPA, which is the User Experience Professionals Association. And they have chapters really globally. There's Hexagon, Design X. Women in Product, Power to Fly, Tech Ladies, Ladies That UX, so, so many. And they always have fun meetups and webinars and job postings if you're looking for companies that really cater to trying to hire based on increasing their diversity. So there's so many great communities. They all have fun Slack channels. So definitely look them up if you want to get a little bit more engaged with the community. Yeah, gotta love those Slack workspaces. Yes, it's a, it's good to take a few minute break when you're at work and just see what everyone else is talking about. Yeah, it's great because like all these communities, when they're on Slack, and because you know your company probably uses Slack to collaborate, it's really easy to just shift from each like workspace. And so, yeah, that's how I keep up with a lot of these communities that I'm a part of as well because they all have Slacks. Yeah, uh, which is so so powerful. Yeah, that's great. Okay, second to last question. What is a product that you think has a good product design? I personally love the Headspace app. And for those of you, 
yeah, who don't know it, it's an app that helps with meditation really. And they are they have these walkthrough tutorials where a soothing voice over nature sounds really just helps you go through these very easy to follow meditation practices. And they've made meditation and mental health much less taboo and also less intimidating. A lot of their, especially their beginner sessions are only five to 10 minutes. And not only is it that I believe in the product and what they're trying to do, I think the design of it is also just really pleasing. They have great visual design. They're always changing up the UX. Um, I saw one of their product designers, Vicky Tan, give a great talk at the Front Conference, I believe, last year. And it was just so interesting to hear how they worked with scientists to study how habits are formed and how users could make meditation more of their day-to-day lives. So overall, I just, I really believe in that product. And I think it not only solves for an important problem, but it's also just really enjoyable to use. Yeah, I really like all their little, like, I guess, what is it called? Like the animations of their... Just like the little figures. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know what like it's illustrations. Called. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Illustrations. Yeah. yeah, those are fun. It's like right out of a, right out of a cartoon. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> all right, great. So last question. Where do you live online or how can people reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, so you could definitely find me there. Like I mentioned, I'm pretty active on Medium. I try to post once a month, um, depending on how busy I am, but super active on Medium as well. So definitely feel free to to find me on there and we can talk about all things tech and diversity related. That's awesome. What was the last blog post that you released? I'm trying to remember. I I don't know if this is the very last one, but I recently wrote a post about how the beginning of the year, I one of my goals for 2019 was to write one post each month mm-hmm. and I wrote a post about writing posts each month. It was very <laughs> it was very meta. Yes, um, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, cuz some months it's much easier and I'm like, "Oh, I have a topic and I can just kind of write it quickly." Other months I, you know, I really struggled to think about something that is tech related that I think I'm passionate about that I can write a full article on. Um, But it really spans, you know, I like to write about events that I go to, but also just kind of random cultural things that I find a way to connect with product design and tech. I mean, that's great, though, that you were, were you able to get to that point where you were like, actually publishing once a month because I can't even get to that point like I wish I could but yeah I think there was one month I was like one day late I posted it like the day after the last day of the former month but I'm, I'm pretty close so I feel pretty good about that that's awesome brilliant okay thanks Christina uh, I really appreciate it thank you so much for being here and I really appreciate your time awesome thanks so much it was great speaking with you So that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. And please feel free to share and subscribe to the Tech Queens podcast. References and links from today's episode will be shared on the website at techqueenspod.com. And if you're interested in being on the podcast yourself, just head on over to the website and click the link below. It doesn't matter where you are in your tech journey, whether you've been in tech for months or decades, I want to hear from you and I want to share your story. So until next time, stay fancy. Hashtag Tech Queens. Mm-hmm.